Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brett Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management, and also Wilsey Asset Management is a proud investing partner of the San Diego Padres. Got a lot of things to talk about today. We're going to talk about the U.S. debt. Yes, that's in the top of people's minds. We'll discuss some things on that. Uh, also go over the savings rate here in, in the country. Uh, the S&P 500, we'll even touch on Bitcoin because there's some things going on with Bitcoin. And with me, as always, is Chase. Chase, uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> well, hey, you want to join the show here? Phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Again, you got a stock company you're looking at buying, selling, holding, whatever it may be. We'll break down those fundamentals, see what they look like on our end. And, you know, it's kind of funny. We we're just talking. I, I got some big news this week. What's the big news? Finally upgraded my iPhone um, <laughs> after, gosh, I think it's been six, maybe seven years. Yeah, you had the iPhone 8, right? iPhone 8, yeah. The battery just finally crapped out on me. It just, <laughs> it just wasn't working anymore. I'd get to 12 o'clock at the office and I'd have 15% left on my battery. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're the new technology with the iPhone 13, is that Yeah, right? well, I didn't go fully new because Verizon had a nice deal where they'll rebate you the cost of the iPhone 13, so it's still technically free, so I didn't have to pay for it like I would have the iPhone 14, so... And the 15 comes out, I think, September, September or something, yeah. 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 But I think the iPhone 13 should last me, hopefully, another seven years. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> well, we, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, let's start off with the U.S. debt because the, the talk began Thursday morning about a rating downgrade for U.S. debt. Uh, the bad news continues to make headlines and drive broader markets and value stocks lower. Uh, we, we took a look at the U.S. debt versus GDP, which is similar to looking at debt versus income. And over the last three years, the ratio has been declining. In the second quarter of 2020, the ratio was 134.8. The most recent data reported was for the fourth quarter of 2022, and the ratio has improved by over 10% to 120.2. Now, we've said many times before, what we should be focusing on is increasing the GDP by growing the economy. This would then reduce the burden of the debt level, and it's something that people need to fixate on. Again, debt is a tool, and I, right. it can be a tool as well for the government. If we were borrowing money and growing the economy, yes, it, it's it's a worthwhile investment. But if we're borrowing money and not growing the economy, yeah, that's when things are pretty bad. And, you know, I was on uh, Fox 5 this past Wednesday and, you know, Raul, the, the anchor there, was saying the $30 trillion worth of debt. I said, yes, it sounds like a lot. And I said in 10 years, this was a little, I think, over the top. I said right. in 10 years, you know, maybe it's $40, 50000000000000 trillion. Right. I don't think we'll be at fifty trillion in no. ten years, but we will hit fifty trillion at some someday, point <laughs> someday. But but then the GDP will hopefully be fifty five to sixty trillion. Yeah, and 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 the difference is that people have to realize is that numbers have to be compared to something else that's relative. If not, it means nothing at all because when you say thirty trillion, as you said on Fox Five, well, yeah, that's a lot of money. But if the GDP and I guess I thought the GDP was. 
closer to 30 trillion, but I guess at 120 percent is probably about what 26, 27 trillion. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could raise that, and I know they're trying to slow down the debt growth, which is going to be a problem as interest rates go higher. So we got to kind of stop that. Uh, we can get through this, and it's not going to happen, you know, next month. It's going to happen years down the road. And I want to point out too, I believe Japan hit a high debt to GDP, I believe 170, maybe even 190%, and they still function. So yep. it, it it's kind of like you can still move forward and do things, but we, we've got to spend the money that they're borrowing on positive things to grow the economy. I mean, you know, I look at our roads here in San Diego. It would be great to repair these roads, which creates jobs, which creates more GDP. But to just give money away for for something is not is not going to help grow the GDP. Well, and you know, I, I'm I'm not in love with everything in the Chips Act, but that is again, if you you look at the fundamental premise of it, it's an investment. If we can invest in you know building semiconductors, that could be very beneficial because, like I said, it creates jobs. It also helps with efficiency of the economy as well. As we start to use more semiconductors, it should make different technology more efficient here. We're not worried about shipping as much from around the world. So there's different investments that we should be able to make that helps the economy grow. And, again, it's worthwhile to potentially borrow that money to invest in the economy. Now, if you're not investing, you're taking money. It's like, you know, I always tell people, if you take out like a credit line in your house, right. don't use that credit line to go on vacation. That makes no sense. You're just <laughs> paying interest there to, to, to I don't want to say waste money, but it's not a valuable investment. Where It's it, not going to grow. Like if you put it back into the house, you've mm-hmm. increased the value of the house by X percent. Exactly. And it's the same concept with the national debt, essentially. Right. And, and I think the economy is doing well. I mean, we always go out to dinner, not you and I, but with our <laughs> well, with your wife, my wife to be. Um, I went to this new restaurant I've been before, Rosia's, I think it was in Rancho Santa Fe. It was jam packed with people, and I think it's because I had the best lasagna there. <laughs> it was great, <laughs> but but still, people are going to these restaurants and waiting outside, all tables full. Um, I know you went to dinner last night. What Fleming? Fleming's? Yeah, it was packed. Yeah, and I mean, so that's what we we need. People to keep spending money, which will, they will do. We'll probably get that savings rate yeah. next, but that keeps the economy growing because that creates more jobs. And we we've got to keep going that thing as opposed to oh, let's just shut things down. So we can't do that. And again, just back to the conversation of again, numbers are all relative. And it's funny I I mentioned on Fox Five this past week as well. I said you know it's like looking back when you could pay a nickel to go to the movies. <laughs> You know, and when I I heard that, I saw you say when I heard that, like I remember my dad would tell me he could go for a nickel. Yeah. I remember I'll date myself here. I remember two dollars I gave the movies for a nickel. I know you pulled that from. I uh, you know, it was just. It, but but I look back if you look back to people that were around, let's say in the nineteen twenties, right? And you told them we had thirty trillion dollars in debt, they'd say you're crazy, right? But also. If movie tickets were twenty dollars, they'd be like, "What?" You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or it's like, "Yeah, the average median income here, uh, two different things." So the median income is like a hundred thousand dollars a year. They'd be like, "Oh my god, everybody's rich." You yeah, know? that's that. That's true, and, I, and that's why it's so important. We when we do invest, we always look at relative numbers. When you look at these factors, you have to be relative, and it's and it's hard because. You know, I, I am older, so I do remember two dollars at the movies. But I never say, "Oh, I remember two dollars." No, it's just like that's the way things are. But I also do remember working for a dollar eighty-five an hour. Yeah. So that that's the big difference again, being being relative. So you you've got to look at that, and it is it is news. And the thing too, we can't ever pay down that debt completely for the government. People say, "What? Why not?" 
because you need that debt for people that need guaranteed uh, results like insurance companies, uh, settlements. Many of these need to have a guaranteed amount that, okay, for 20 years, you can get this X percent and it's guaranteed by the government. You need government debt. You can't get rid of it completely. Yeah, we should have. Yeah, we have zero debt. That wouldn't be good. No, it wouldn't, wouldn't be good. It would cause problems. So, well, let's talk about the savings rate because even though consumers have said that they are worried about a potential recession, that has not stopped them from spending. In the month of April, spending rose 0.8% compared to March. This easily topped the estimate of 0.4% gain. There was a $151.7 billion increase in expenditures with six or with $86.9 billion of it coming from services and the reigning $64.8 billion coming from an increase in spending on goods. Now, some have highlighted a concern over a depressed saving rate, which actually fell to 4.1% in April from 4.5% in March. This was the first decline in the savings rate since last year. And oh my gosh, right how terrible that is. But this rate has actually been depressed since the beginning of 2022. But I believe much of this is due to the oversaving that occurred during COVID. There were some months in 2020 and 2021 that the savings rate was over 20%. And in April 2020, it was 33.8%. Again, you couldn't go spend that money anywhere. And the government was pumping in money into the economy. Mm -hmm. So it was just going into savings accounts. So now if we look at the average savings rate from March 2020 to April 2023, it would be 10.1%. For comparison, if we look at the average saving rate from January 2017 from February 2020, it was 7.9%. So again, 10.1 versus 7.9. I believe that COVID really created a lot of excess savings in the economy that people can afford to spend more of their income each month, savings that were built up during the pandemic. Now, as we go out over the next couple of years, I would expect to see those excess savings continue to fall as the saving rate does really normalize and climb higher. I mean, right now we're still kind of having all this excess cash that I think you could still be at four and a half percent, maybe five percent. But at some point we should see that savings rate probably two, three years down the road should be back around seven, eight percent. And I'm pretty sure if we go back in time, 20, 25 years uh, I believe the savings rate really averaged about four to five, maybe four to five percent. It doesn't. It's not really very high. You, you think it's higher? Yeah, I looked at it yesterday. There was a lot of times where it was actually eight, nine percent, like going back to probably the early two thousands. Really? Okay. All right. So, um, but even with that, when and we talked about growing the economy. Yeah. Um, you can't really grow the economy saving too much money because then you're not spending the money. So mm-hmm. you have to have this balance. So we're not we're not in a terrible situation again. And we point out these things. I, I I hate to say this, but it's the truth. Mainstream media will only bring out the negative side. They won't. They're terrible for investors because they cause you to actually sell everything because everything's bad. There's not these bad things going on. You point out some great numbers with a savings rate that hey, it's really not that bad. I mean, people are still saving. It's not the rate. It's not like it's a negative. Where there's yeah. a negative saving rates of of four four percent, so it, these are positive. You get that nice balance. And I'll, I'll tell you that it's almost like a double edged sword here, though, is because there's still a lot of spending going on. Mm-hmm. That helps inflation. No, yeah. I, well, it, well, does, it helps inflation, inflation the wrong way. Right. So right. it is <laughs> a negative causes inflation. It causes inflation right. because people are now spending money. Now this again goes back to that whole discussion we had about the supply. Yep. 
And if we can generate better supply there, that can help match the demand level. That's where you could help inflation ease. But right now, if we don't fix the supply side, I still believe you could have a lot of demand side coming because there is still a lot of liquid money out there. We know that people are still spending money. And even though they may not say they feel good, (laughs) their actions are acting a little bit differently. So it, it... it could still be a problem on inflation, and I know that the PCE came out yesterday, and it was it was okay. I would say it's up about what one tenth of percent or something. I think yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it, and it, it was still about four. I think it was four and a half percent was still the growth year over year, and it's just like we're stuck right now. And I still think the Fed shouldn't hike. Right. But we, we still need to see that come down. And, and right now, with all the money still there, with everybody still spending, if we can't fix the supply side. I don't know if we're going to be able to push inflation back to that 2% target. And, 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 you know, I always say if the government would help to increase the supply, what they could do, which they would don't want to do because they hate big business, is give big businesses tax credits to expand. Yeah. Because if they expand, you'll create more supply. You create more supply, prices will fall. But the government, like, oh, we're supporting big businesses. Yes. I mean, big businesses have this terrible name, like, oh, they're so mean and so they're the ones that actually bring down prices because they do want to compete. They want to get the business, and they want to produce more to bring down prices to get more customers. I mean, it's a very simple concept, and the government the government doesn't understand that because the government just like well, – it's talking points. Yeah, yeah, and they, they, just, they just spend money. They get money for free from taxpayers, and, like, they just spend it. They don't have to compete for it. So it, it, it is a shame. It's something that we go back and forth, and that's why you got to vote for the right people in offices to really understand, does this person understand the economy – or they're just somebody that everybody likes or, you know, they're, they're – I, I don't want to – we need some balance here, but we can't have everything done to protect little birds and stuff like that. Well, yeah, so. I mean, business – and business, again, they employ people. I mean, we, we yeah. want business to be successful. It, it's important because it, it not only helps people have jobs, but it helps the economy move along and it helps, again, with pricing and the, the economy. And it, it is so important, and that's where, again, I – I know that the Fed right now is trying to just crush demand because there, there's two ways to tame inflation. Number right. one, you increase supply. Or number two, you crush demand. Well, right now, inflation is not getting fixed on the supply side. So the Fed's saying, yeah, we got we to gotta kill demand here. Right. And, you know, I still am a firm believer that should not hike in June because we've seen so many hikes that I, I think we should afford to be patient. And let's even say that we have inflation of 4%. Is it really worth it to crush GDP, to crush employment, just to get inflation back down to 2% when I think naturally over the next five years you could see inflation come down? I really think there's got to be a balance rather than that hard line. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think they should cut rates and have inflation spike back up to 7% or something like that. But I really think they need to be careful. Slow down a little bit. To, to yeah. not kill the economy. Yep, yep. And, and, and I've you know, been accused, and I, and I am. I, for our portfolio, I'm very optimistic come December 31st where people say, you're like the only one. Well, first of all, I look what's in our portfolio. Yeah. But also, too, I look at other things like we just talked about the savings rate. And everybody's like, oh, things are so bad, so bad. And, and I don't care what station you watch, whether it's CNBC, Fox Business, CNN, everybody's negative. I, I just oh, yeah. don't hear the stuff that we find because it doesn't sell commercials and we don't care about selling commercials. We sponsor this show because I want to get out to, to people the right information, not have to do something for ratings to get good information to sell commercials. Well, it's like, hey, yeah, everything's good. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't need to watch anything. Yeah, your, your portfolio, yeah, it's, it's just moving along. Wow, that's great news. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, are we going to go into recession? Or is the stock market going to fall 40%? 
oh, I, I better watch. <laughs> I, I got a call like that yesterday. Somebody said, well, I heard that the market's going to fall 40%. I go, you probably heard that from somebody pushing gold. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what they do because they want you to buy gold. So, um, But when you look at the fundamentals, they're not. we're not going to fall 40%. We have talked about, which is our next topic, we'll talk about the S&P 500 because it is uh, an unbalanced uh, index right now. So let's talk about that, uh, which is the S&P 500. The five biggest companies in the S&P 500 account for nearly 25% of the entire index when combined with a market cap of about $8.7 trillion. Now, those five companies are about 3.2 times the Russell 2000, which has a value of $2.7 trillion. Now, this differential is larger than the difference between the five biggest stocks and the Russell 2000 during the dot-com boom. The five companies we're talking about, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and the new darling right now, NVIDIA. Something just doesn't seem right when investing in these companies at these levels. I mean, it just, I I look at these and and I have it here, the top five stocks, and this is as of last week, and now we know NVIDIA went up tremendously, but as of last week, the top five stocks had returned an average of 50% in 2023, which accounted for roughly 80% of the S&P's gains. Right. I mean, you look at the equal weight S&P, it's it's flat to slightly down last I checked on it. Yeah. Oh, the equal weight S&P. The equal yeah, weight. Yeah, because that's the uh, weight. The S&P is up, but the equal weight, yeah. And 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 that's what people don't understand. They think, oh, you know, the markets are this, and uh, my guy's not doing good. And, and again, I, I, I always have to be careful about performance, but I think I can say we're not doing as well as the S&P 500 year to date. And I'm okay with that because I understand what is going on there. And I know our businesses that we hold in the portfolio are fundamentally very strong. Their, their value companies are on sale. That's why I'm very optimistic to go forward because I've seen this over my 40 years of doing this where – just be patient. If you hold the right investments, you will be fine. But I, I do believe that's why I say I think over the next, uh, oh, probably five to ten years, I believe the average return of the S and P five hundred be around three percent because you can't stay at these lofty levels with these five companies. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the the uh, Nifty Fifty back in back in the seventies. Yeah, no, it, it definitely does, and it, it just when you start looking at numbers, it, it just doesn't make sense. And it's like, yeah, Apple's doing great, Microsoft, all these companies are doing great things. Don't get me wrong, but the the problem is 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 if you look at the valuations on these companies, those top five stocks again, the average forward PE here, thirty one times estimated two thousand twenty four earnings. Again, that was before the surge. We're now NVIDIA is trading, what, 80 times? 83 times. 83 yeah. times. Now, the index as a whole trades at 17.4 times 2024 earnings. So these companies have really lifted the S&P so far this year. But again, 31 times, yeah. that is so expensive that what that tells me is there's a lot of companies that trade for Less than 17 times, 16 times earnings. That's where we're looking at buying, and that's why we're not worried because there's a lot of froth. Right. And we don't want to go near that froth because you can't have these companies. And it's funny when NVIDIA is trading at 50 times earnings, I'm like, what's it going to do? Trade at 80 times earnings? I, I guess so. Yeah. But it can't trade at those levels forever. And these are warning signs that, that we put out. The other one, too, that uh, I'll talk more about this on my segment tomorrow on KSI is that uh, the disparance, uh, the, the, the gap, I'll call it, between uh, the Dow and the S&P 500 is the widest it's ever been since 1945 when they started keeping track of the records. And that, again, is another sign like, well, why is that? It's because of how they they uh, come up with the index weight and so forth. And I won't go into detail on that now. But it's just it, 1945. That's uh, nearly 100 years. 
things are not right in the market. If you're investing in the indexes, I think people can be in for a shock or they're going to be sitting there for a long time. And then I, I think two, three years from now, like, yeah, I made no money in stocks. Yeah. yeah. Because you held the index. Yeah. And another fun number here. Apple, at some points, their market cap is about $2.76 trillion. When you look at the Russell 2000 index, that's uh, about the market cap of the Russell 2000. So 2000 companies, Equal Apple <laughs> is yeah worth all of that. It's just great. And I've heard Apple, you know, it's like you look at it compared against the, the European. It's just it's crazy when you break it down. And what is Apple going to go to a five trillion dollar market cap? I mean, I just I don't see how that can happen. Right. I I I wouldn't say five trillion, but I, but I think it's possible for craziness to happen to go yeah. to three trillion. You just don't know what's going to happen craziness, but craziness does not go on forever. I went through the tech boom and bust. We talked about the Nifty Fifty. Eventually, things come back to the norm. That's just mathematically the way things work. Everything comes back to the mean eventually, and it will happen. Just don't know when. And um, yeah, no, and it, it's just so important. And the thing we talked about in the office yesterday. Uh, and I think even this morning a little bit, but I mean, you look at Tesla and we talked about NVIDIA right. is people say, yeah, you were wrong on them, but we know why we were wrong on them. Right. They, they don't fit our value philosophy. And yeah, we give NVIDIA tremendous credit the way they've been able to pivot from different segments of, you know, kind of the semiconductor industry. It's been phenomenal, but can they keep that up? And we've been wrong so far, but to justify that multiple going forward, I just, it's going to, like, after AI, what are they going to pivot to next? Yeah, AI is another thing that it's just, I you know, I've been doing some research on that. Where is the profits going to come from? How is it going to happen? Um, it, 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 I'm just not seeing it. And right now, mine's the dot-com, back to the dot-com. Oh, you said dot-com, your stock went up. Yeah. Now you say AI, your stock goes up. So uh, it, it, it's just not not a good thing there. So but let me open the phone lines here because uh, if you have a question or you want to look at a company that you're own, look at a buying, uh, we will give you that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. Phone number is here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. I did say we talked about Bitcoin, so you may have heard that uh, recently there was a Bitcoin convention in Miami Beach. The excitement seems to be leaving Bitcoin based on the change of attendance. And last year, the uh, conference there, the convention, had 26,000 attendees. And this year, it dropped to about 13,000 attendees. It was also noted at the entrance, there was a sign that read, no bears allowed. Talk about some open discussion there, huh? <laughs> and what does that tell you about the future of Bitcoin? Again, the excitement is really starting to fizzle out. And, you know, it just seems like Bitcoin has just really been, you know, it got that spike kind of early on in the year. And now it's just been really trading in between, it seems like, twenty six and 28,000. And it just, I just think if it doesn't go anywhere, I think people will really start to lose that excitement and, even and, more. Yeah, and this is what happens when you have an investment that has no fundamentals. It's always been based on emotion. We're up to, what, 64,000? Oh, so exciting, so exciting. Well, then it went down, what, $15,000. Now it's back up to, I think, around $26,000. It just doesn't have that excitement. And also, too, I was reading something else that people are really losing uh, more money on Bitcoin. They just can't find it. You know, so, Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah so. And you know what that does? <clears throat> takes less out of the market, so it becomes even more thinly traded. So then it actually creates more price volatility because as you decrease the amount of supply out there, that's not moving. Yeah. So it's... 
More volatility. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, if you want more of this information, uh, we do do a newsletter. This is where information comes from that we write every week. It goes out on Fridays. We have other information in the newsletter uh, about global information, uh, cars, uh, Anheuser-Busch, uh, freight rates, uh, Apple's in there. So if you want the free newsletter, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. You can uh, sign up for it uh, right there at the website, and it's free. And and uh, I, people really love it because we, we, it's very concise information. It doesn't take you long to read, and uh, it really kind of moves quickly for people. Good information there. So, again, smartinvesting2000.com. All righty, our phone number is here, 833-288-0973. Let's go out to San Diego and speak with Anthony. Anthony, you're on the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, AT&T. I don't own any of it currently, and they announced the other day that I believe they're maybe cutting their dividend and the stock price tumbled. So I want to see what you think about the value that it's at right now. Okay. Well, let's say you at AT&T. Their symbol right, is T. They're in the telecom services. Only 1.2% uh, shares float there. We do see institutional ownership is 56%. Uh, they have no P.E. ratio versus 21.7 for the industry. Price of sales looks good, 1 versus 1.2. Price to book value, 1.1 versus 1.6. And price of cash flow stands at 3.6 versus 4.5. Now, the earnings over the last year are flat, uh, nothing there. The industry actually went down 35.7%. We do see sales uh, were down 25.7%, which was worse than the industry of 47 Now, they do pay a 7.2% dividend yield versus 37 for the industry. There's no payout ratio because over the last 12 months, they do not have earnings. We do see that the current ratio on the company is 0.5 versus 0.9, which is a little bit low. I would wish I was a little bit higher. Uh, we also do see debt to equity is 1.6, which is higher than we like to be but it is lower than the industry at 1.9. We see a net profit margin for AT&T of negative 7.5% versus a positive 5.7. Return on equity is also negative, unfortunately, a negative 9.4%. Chase? So current price here for AT&T is $15.50. 52 week high, well, that's $22.84. And then lows, $14.46. Year-to-date, stock's down 13.4%. If we go out to December 2024, though, the estimated earnings per share is $2.49. I mean, it gives us a target sell price of $41.33. The, the valuations on this is just phenomenal. And when you look at the concern over that dividend, it, AT&T hasn't come out saying they're going to cut the dividend. There's analysts that are <laughs> fearful they will. And they came out in the first quarter, had you know sales that beat, earnings that beat, but the concern was free cash flow was lower than anticipated. But if you actually read through the conference call, they said the same thing happened last year. Yeah, you know, free cash flow was lower than anticipated in the first quarter, but they said, yeah, it's going to pick back up through the end of the year. Guess what happened? It picked back up. Picked up. It's like these people don't believe the the CEOs know what's going on with their business right, many right. times. And I think people look at the numbers, not listen to the CEO, because I remember the CEO said that, yeah, we're paying a lot of bills right now, but those can be paid off the second half of the year. It's a second half story. Uh, we've got plenty of cash flow coming in. I, th- I think their cash flow does more than pay the dividend anyways. So it, it's just, uh, I think people coming out uh, against AT&T, maybe they're short the stock, trying to drive it down. 
But based on the fundamentals, based on what, what we've heard and seen from the uh, CEO of AT&T, I, I, I think it's a good time to buy it. I mean, their, their cash flow still remains extremely strong, as you said. And they're looking at higher cash flow this year than last year. Right. And, you know, I, I just don't see the dividend being a problem. And now you get a 7.2% yield. They did cut the dividend last year. I don't think they're going to need to cut the dividend again. Right. Right. So, And they've even talked about right-sizing the dividend so essentially they can grow that dividend again down the road. Not cut it. <laughs> Not cut it, but, but grow it, yeah. So, And I think they just need a little more time. But I, uh, this is what's great about investing is that you look at the numbers and you won't be right all the, all the time. I tell people I'm wrong a third of the time. But I, I just looking at AT&T, we just went over the numbers, strong numbers. Uh, the analyst, 90 days ago, the estimate was 251. Okay, now it's 249. That's not a big drop at all compared to a lot of other companies. Uh, we talk about the cash flow. Uh, I, I, I do not see a reason not to buy AT&T. I think you'd regret not buying it. Uh, I think a year from now you could be up on the, the stock, we'll say 20, maybe 25%, and collect that 7 point, uh, what did I say, 7.3, 7.2% dividend. Yeah, and I mean, one thing I will say is you said the numbers are good, and people are oh, the PE multiple is not material. But that's where you got to understand the earnings because especially they had that huge changeover from yep. – spinning out Warner Brothers, and it really kind of created a lot of, I'm going to say, one-time expenses that necessarily didn't hurt cash flow, but they hit earnings. Now, I like earnings and I like cash flow, but you got to understand that that those expenses aren't going to be happening every single year. So if you can kind of extrapolate that out, you can understand the numbers better. So sometimes a PE of five might be a really bad PE because they could have been really great benefactors in the last year and then next year their PE could be 20 again yep, yep. same could ring true if it's not material and the next year it could drop down to like 10 yeah yeah and that's how deep you have to go into understanding that the businesses so uh obviously AT&T we're, we're gonna slap a buy on it because I think it's a good buy and you get a great dividend yield on, on there as well all right phone number is 833-288-0973 that's 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go to El Cajon and speak with Todd. Todd, you're in the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Good morning, Brent and Chase. Good morning. Appreciate all that you do, and I am looking at Semper Energy SRE. Okay, um, so I'd like to just go over the numbers with you. Okay, and I think you said looking, so that means you don't hold it yet. Is that correct? Hold it as an employee. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's take a look at uh, Sepra Energy, symbol is SRE. They're in the utilities diversified industry. Uh, only 1% float on there, so that's uh, no problem there. 88% institutional owned. PE ratio 18.6. Uh, that is far better than the industry, yet uh, not material. Price of sales is high, though, 2.7 versus 0.6. Price of tangible book value, very good, 1.8 versus 10.4. Price of cash flow is 30 versus 6.8, so that's not very good. And they do have a pay ratio going forward of 4.1 versus nothing for the industry. Now, we do see earnings were up, wow, 154% over the last year. The industry was down 42.8%. Sales climbed by 28%. Industry up 49.2%. And they do say the analysts, a five-year growth rate on uh, Sempra, 4.1% versus flat for the industry. Now you get a 3.3% dividend yield. They use 59% their earnings to pay that out, so that's pretty good. Uh, they have grown that dividend 10 years in a row. Uh, look at the balance sheet. Current ratio 0.5 versus 0.9. I am disappointed that I thought that would be higher. The uh, debt to equity is 1.1 versus 1.8. 
Net profit margin, very good, 14.5 versus a negative 0.2. And the return to equity is 8.9 versus a negative 2.5. And return of asset capital, <clears throat> 6.4 versus 0.4. Chase? Uh, current price here, 4 cents per $143.85. The 52-week high, $176.47. And the 52-week low was $136.54. I see year-to-date stock is down 6.2%. If I got to December 2024, though, I do see estimated earnings per share of $9.59. That would give us a target sell price here of $159.19, so $159.19 against that target sell above the current price of $143.85. It is still, I'm going to say, close to that sell price, though, so it would be in our hold category. And one thing I was going to say, too, with these utility companies, I, I would like to kind of see a little bit more of a pullback because generally they're almost looked at as a uh, fixed income type proxy. Yeah is when bonds go up and those yields go higher, many times people kind of dump these to get into bonds. It could present a, a buying opportunity in these utilities because right now, as I said, it's a hold. But I, I'm kind of impressed. I, I remember debt used to be a bigger problem for Semper. It looks pretty good now. Yeah, I mean, maybe they haven't paying down that debt. Uh, one thing about Semper, and I don't know enough about it to, to say it's good or bad, but I know they do a lot of trading. And trading worries me. Because, In terms of the derivatives of the Yes, yes, energy. of the energy and so forth. And I, if I owned it or was looking at buying it, I would understand that a lot more because they may have this great thing that they're doing. But trading means that you're not going to be right all the time. Yeah. And this could really hurt their earnings if they're on the wrong side of the trade. So uh, I would just say if I was going to buy that, that company, I would want to understand more about their trading the derivatives and so forth, how they handle the energy, because they're not a pure utility company, which is I want people to know. It's not they're just collecting money from uh, you know utilities. They have other businesses that have done very well for them, but it worries me because I don't understand them, and I've not spent the time to look at them. So that that's what I'd be looking at, Todd, is, is really understand that derivative trading that they're doing, or that energy trading that they're doing. All righty? All right. Thanks so much. Okay, Todd. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, that does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Uh, let's go out to Carl. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, okay, I, I Harrison. Okay, yeah, I, I see Harrison there. So let's go out to our financial planner, uh, Harrison Johnson. Good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Good, good. So today we're talking about reverse mortgages, and I've known about these. Gosh, they've been around for a long time. Uh, I always look at them as a double-edged sword. They can be good, but it can also hurt you if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Brent. There's a lot of uh, negative opinions out there, so I wanted to explain how they work. And I'm not here to say that everyone needs to go and get one of these by any means, but in, in some cases they can be useful. So um, a normal mortgage is called a forward mortgage. With that, you get a lump sum of funds up front to go buy a house, and then you make payments on that loan bank. With a reverse mortgage, you can get a lump sum of money up front or have access to a line of credit you can draw periodically, uh, whatever you would draw from that the loan balance and accrues interest, and then when you pass away or, or move, the home is sold, and then the proceeds are used to pay off whatever outstanding loan balance you have, um, and then the rest goes to your estate. So as opposed to making payments to the loan over time, um, you would essentially make a payment at the end um, after you move or pass away. So who's this for? Um, 
if you're someone who doesn't care about leaving an inheritance, you know, maybe you don't have kids or um, you've already paid for your kids' college and you don't intend to leave them anything else, or you're just not interested in leaving a legacy, which is totally fine, uh, what this would do, reverse mortgage would add another income stream to your retirement. And since the proceeds that you get are considered a loan, they're not taxable. So from a tax planning perspective, you know, maybe you've got some Social Security income, IRA or pension income. That's all considered ordinary income, and maybe that fills up the lower tax brackets. Well, if you stack some reverse mortgage income on top of that, not income, so that means all the income that you have stays in those lower tax brackets. Uh, so who else is this for? If, if you're someone who's on limited income and you're looking for something to supplement your Social Security, you know, there's people out there that have a house but are barely getting by just on Social Security income. Well, this allows them to stay in their home, but also get some extra income to help make ends meet. Uh, the downsides. So with a reverse mortgage, you're decreasing the amount of equity you have in your home. An issue that people, they spend their whole life trying to pay off their mortgage to be debt-free. They don't want to then get a home and see that equity go away that they've spent, they've spent so long building up. Um, so if you have plans on leaving that house to someone, or if you intend to move, you wanted to just have that home equity as a reserve in case you need it later on, then a reverse mortgage is going to hurt your ability to do that. Um, because whatever you would draw accrues it, that interest just accruing as long as you have it. Uh, there's also fees with setting them up, origination fees, plus all the interest that you accrue along the way. Uh, with the origination fees, you can roll them into the loan balance so you don't have to you know, outlaw it I'll lay any cash for it, but then that balance accrues interest. So these can make sense in some cases, but you really understand what you're getting into in your homes with the as collateral to get some extra cash flow, but then you're building up a loan balance over time. And, and Harrison, I think what's so important about these is I know there's some people out there that are not the most upstanding salespeople. And then there's some great companies mm -hmm. out there as well. So you got to make sure whoever you're going to to talk to this on, it's a reputable company, reputable people, because uh, I, I, I think these can be a good tool for the right people, but you got to be careful, real careful who you're dealing with here. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, when, you know, they're, they're, they're complicated um, instruments. And when you set one up, there, there are, there, there can be a lot of fees with it. And so, who you work with, you want to make sure it's someone that's trustworthy because, um, yeah, you don't want to get into a situation. Like I talked to a guy the other day, and he was looking at getting a reverse mortgage to um, get some funds to add solar. And when we looked at, well, you can technically get equity out of your home to do that, but just the fees alone to set up the, the reverse mortgage were so much compared to the overall cost of the solar system where it just doesn't make sense. And so if you're a salesperson trying to sell this, you know, they, they might say, well, you can do this. You don't have to pay for it. You get the tax credit and all those things. Um, but you, you got to understand the big picture to see if, if the numbers really justify it. Yeah, so I think it's important that the person you deal with or the company you deal with is a reputable company that actually does go over that for you and not just, you know, like a used car salesman uh, to just, oh, well, this is going to be great for you and not look at the fees and you get yourself into things that you shouldn't be into. So. Right. Yeah. Because once you get one of these things, then you're, you know, it's not as easy to get out of it. Because even if you just set one up and then, 
you know, have access to the line of credit, but you haven't withdrawn anything, well, you still, you know, paid a decent amount of fees just to set it up. So, yeah, you, you definitely want to be aware of who you're working with and, you know, everything that's involved. And, and this is one thing, too, that you do look at uh, in your financial plan if they have one or if they should be getting one as well as an idea, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some cases, like I said, it does make sense, and I might say, you know, uh, this is how this would benefit you because of your situation. And, and so I, I have talked about these with people. Some people just, no, I'm not doing that. I'm never going to do that. Reverse mortgages are always bad. I, you know, so some people are very standoffish, which is fine. There's usually other ways to, to make things work, but it's a tool. In some cases, it can be helpful. In other cases, it is not the right thing. So it depends on the situation. Right. But we, we look at it on a case-by-case basis. And when they say, oh, I'm never going to do that. Bad. I've heard bad things. It's like, oh, I should never ask in stocks because they're all bad. <laughs> it's like you got to understand right. it. And exactly. Have, like, someone like yourself or, again, a good person that is actually sound. So to say never is not the right thing because it could be, and I've seen over my 40 years of doing this times that, yes, the person should have done a reverse mortgage. Would have helped them out a lot. So, well, Harrison, thank you very much. I appreciate your time, and we'll see you uh, not Monday. Monday's a holiday. We'll see you Tuesday. So, uh, have a great <laughs> weekend. Right. Yeah, all right. Okay. All right, guys. We'll see you Tuesday. Thanks. Right. Okay. Bye bye. Again, that's our uh, financial planner. He's a CFP, Harrison Johnson. Again, he's on a salary. He doesn't get paid commissions for selling a product. He is a true fee based financial planner. If you want to sit down, have a conversation with him, give him a call at the office at 858 546. 4306. That's 858 546 4306. Or go to the website smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can send them an email right there. All right. Our phone number is here 833 Let's go up to Oceanside and speak with Carl. Carl, you're on the Smart Investor yes. with Brent Chase. How can we help you? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Uh, eventually, the rate hike will stop, and maybe the rate will come down again. It might take some time. I looked at the TLT, the 20-year bond, and uh, is, this a, is this a good investment to buy that uh, ETF? And if it goes down, I buy a little bit more? And over time, it might appreciate to go higher. Well, and in the meantime, I get a little bit dividend. Well, and I will tell you my thoughts. I know Chase has a thought on this as well, is that uh, the, the ETF 20-year bond, first of all, it's an ETF. You're probably paying a very small expense for it, but they're doing nothing special here. I would just go buy the, the 20-year bond myself and, and, and just we're going to hold it for 20 years not worry about it. But what's going to happen at the end of the day, your rate's going to go up and down, up and down. You're really going to earn the coupon rate. So if the 20-year Treasury is trading at, uh, I don't know, 3, I'm going to just throw a number here, 3.4%, that's what you're going to earn. I don't think that's a very good return. It's very safe, but over 20 years, that's not going to be a terrible return. So I would not do the ETF. I wouldn't even do the 20-year Treasury. Yeah, and when I look at the ETF, actually, it is still a culmination of different bonds as well. So you're not getting the current rate on the 20-year Treasury because you're getting the, the coupon rate from bonds that they may have bought last year, two years ago when rates were even lower. So right now I see the yield. This is based off Yahoo Finance on the 20-year uh, Treasury bond ETF TLT, it's 2.7%. So you're getting a very, very small yield. And, and what should happen probably is that yield will start to increase because rates have gone up a little bit. But I'll tell you, Carl, one of my big concerns here is 
when I look at the longer end of the yield curve, I don't think the longer end of the yield curve is going to move that much. When the Fed's talking about cutting rates, you're going to see that more. And again, this will be, I think, next year when the right. Fed will likely cut rates. They're going to cut the short end of the curve. So that's going to impact savings accounts. That's going to impact money market accounts. That's going to impact the one-year, probably the two-year treasuries. Not so much, I think, the 10 and the 20-year. I don't think that's going to go down. I think it's going to be, the again, the shorter end. So I think you're going to be stuck in this investment that's yielding really nothing. And the price might go down because yields might stay high and even go higher on the long end, which would push the price down. I would not be in long-term bonds at this rate. I, I still think there is interest rate risk on those that a lot of people may be missing. And, and Carl, I, I agree with Chase because I think at a longer, longer end going forward, and again, we're talking years down the road, I think that the longer end could be higher because it is artificially low right now, but the shorter end will will, will drop. So I, I, I just don't see any good argument to buy the TLT or buy a long-term bond at these levels. Now, if the rates were up to five, six, seven percent, you could lock in that rate for twenty years. Like, gosh, that'd be a pretty good deal. But to lock in a rate, you said the ETFs what two point seven, which is not locked in anyways. Yeah. But even locking in a twenty-year Treasury at uh, again, we're guessing at three point four. I, I just don't see the the point of it. So, I uh, if you want to be safe with the money uh, and you have extra cash, do that. You know, do a six-month T bill or something like that. If it's for short-term money. If not, you should be investing. Don't I wouldn't mess around with the long treasuries. 20-year treasury is 4.15% currently. 20-year treasury? Yeah. Wow, I was surprised it's that high. But even then, it's I, I wouldn't lock my money away for 20 years at 4%. Yeah. All right, Carl. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, that does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Let's go up to Oceanside and speak with Mike. Mike, you're on the Smart Vegetable Brent Chase. How can we help you? How you doing, guys? Good, um, how you doing? I think I might have talked to you about this about a year or so ago, and I've been kind of watching it. Um, JEPI, it's offered by JP Morgan, one of the stronger banks, and um uh, it's been trading at a range since I've been following it, a couple, two, almost three years now, between about 50, high 51 to up to 55. So the volatility seems to be fairly low, pays a whopping 11% dividend, and um, it pays the dividend monthly, and... Um, the volatility is low. Now, I, my, my question is, that three or four point range, if you're catching it on the lower end of that, you know, 51, 52, and I've been down, I've been kind of cost averaging down every time I see it dip around 51, 52, I pick up five shares, 10 shares. And it just seems to be a great alternative to, oh, uh, more risky stocks, tech stocks, that type of thing. I'm 62, so I like the income, and the volatility's really low. You know, throughout some pretty volatile periods in the last three years, and it really has not affected it. Yeah, they trade in options, and if anybody can figure out options, I would think J.P. Morgan probably and their specialists do a pretty good job of it. But uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, well, obviously, I'm I'm pretty confident, and I th- I think Chase, you probably pulled out some information on it, but uh, uh, I I always get a little bit nervous with options because you won't be 
right all the time. It is a form of gambling. I know they're probably doing covered options, which is, you know, uh, a little bit safer. But there's going to be a time they're wrong. I think you mentioned a two-year period. It's moved, you know, from 50 to 55, paying 11%. If they start moving the wrong direction, which is very possible, you can see this drop, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20%. And that 11% yield sounds pretty good, but it's based off the option premium. So I, I've never been a big fan of option type funds because back in the 80s when I first started doing uh, investing, <clears throat> I was told about these Ginny Mae Plus funds, these premium funds. Oh, wow, you're you're getting a much better yield. <clears throat> back then, the yield on these were about, oh, I think 12%. Well, when rates moved the wrong direction, they fell 30%, 40%. These were on bonds. This is a, some type of equity. So they sound pretty good, but you can really get hit on the the blind side, and I, I and I'm not looking deep into. I think Chase may see a little bit more in that. What, what are you saying, Chase? Yeah, and it's a, a fund that I'd want to know the option strategy. My guess would be, as Brent kind of said, is they're they're selling covered calls. You know, maybe selling puts. Or they're they're definitely selling options here to generate that that high yield. Because uh, when I look at the fund, eighty. 2%, 83% of it's invested in U.S. equities. So their top holdings here in uh, smaller amounts, but Microsoft is 1.7%. The Hershey Company is 1.6%. Amazon's 1.6%. MasterCard's one5 So it's investing in stocks, obviously. So that's 82, 83% of it. And then not classified, and this is on Morningstar, it's about 13, 14%. So I'm guessing that's going to be the options that, that, they're, that they're utilizing in the portfolio as well. And I, I do wonder, I guess, is, you know, you talk about, these volatile times, I wonder if they almost benefit when things are going down. But what could happen if, let's say they're selling calls and they're generating the premium from that, and all of a sudden things start to go well and things start to go up. Well, you're going to get those positions called away from you and you're not going to do as well had you bought the individual company because now, let's say you have a company that's trading at $100 share, the call's at 120 it goes up to 150 Well, that doesn't matter. It gets called the way you have to put it back to the person at 120 so you lost out on that premium. And I wonder if they've benefited from the downside in the market because they're selling those options. They haven't had any stocks called away from them, but if things revert and go higher, this could actually get hit because you're going to lose out on the, the potential upside gain. Well... I, I, I agree with you and I disagree with you in that there have been periods where interest rates were, you know, at 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 zero and it still didn't affect it. And, Not interest you know, rates. I, the stock goes up. Well, I mean, the, the, the stock market, you know, and I, I just see that, number one, uh, with Chase, yeah, they have a lot of free cash, a lot of money, and and they can write covered calls, which are much safer. And um, and in doing so, um, there's less risk as opposed to – I agree with you. I don't do options normally. But when you have the diversification that they do, I think there's it makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Because – they're going to be ahead of the curve. They seem to be ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff. You know, I have a uh, a uh, an advisor there at Chase, and you know, they they call me every month or two, and and they give me a pretty good heads up on when things are starting to really change. And um, you know, eleven percent is pretty good. I mean, yeah, you could be in stocks and make an extra fifteen percent, but what are you really picking up? An extra 
4%, you know, and, and you still have the possibility of upside. I, I don't know. I've been watching it for a long time and I've been waiting for something wonky to go wrong with it. It's just, it's, it's just not. And, yeah. Even I, if you go back five years, you know. Right. I, I like that term wonky. And I'm saying, too, is I haven't had the time to really look at right. this. So I, I'm kind of speculating on what they do. And I'd be very curious as well, you know, if things change, how variable is that dividend essentially on it? Because it's going to be based off the premiums that they get on the option. So, I mean, it, it's definitely a complex product, and I, I'm trying to right. kind of speculate on it right now. And generally, if I don't understand something, it's just that's. Ah, yeah, and Mike, you brought up another thing too that Chase has a lot of money. I don't think they'd use money from the banking side to support a fund that they started. I'm not even sure if they can do that. I think that could be SEC rules. I know they can't do that. So you really have to look at this fund only. Yes, and Chase, I think, has some great managers and so forth, but you're still dealing with it. And, and what Chase said to because I tried this strategy uh, years ago, and it sounds pretty good because you get the premiums like, wow, look, I'm getting this 11%. But then you see the stock that you bought at 100 the, the call price may have been 105, and the stock went to 115. Well, it was called away from you at 105. You missed that big run up to 115. Now you got this cash. Now we're going to buy something else that that's that as good and put a, a premium on that. So I, I think it's done well. You didn't mention the five years you've looked at it. I know the past two years probably did well in a market that's going down, but I, I believe on a market that we should have the next uh, – year or two and again when i say the market i'm not talking about the index i'm talking about equities uh that i think this fund will not do as well uh because it's too much stuff to be called away so um i, I but, but but couldn't you isn't isn't it an alternative to short or medium term bonds in that if you see that happen then you just get out and you've made your you know you, you know if you cost average down to 51 you see it drop down to 51 or whatever you just you just get out of it and take your you take your 11 percent what you've earned and go on and reinvest it into some other stuff well and also too on the the yield this is kind of what i was talking about is the yield ranges this is over since 2020 i see a lot like 26 cents one month was the dividend and the high there's like 61 cents so it's not like you're getting a fixed 11 percent yield on a dividend stock let's say that they're paying right. that because it does right does vary so that that's where again it, it's a very complicated situation because you've got to understand their philosophy on the derivatives and, and the options i guess i should say not the derivatives necessarily right. that's where right. your your yield could go from maybe five percent to eleven percent and it's it's going to change quite quite frequently. And, and Mike, you brought up the bond side. This is not bonds. This is equities. So <clears throat> I know you got that no, nice I yield. <clears throat> so don't don't look at the bond side. But this is strictly the equity side. And, it, and no, it's just, I, I, I'm I'm saying more as an alternative. Alternative, right? To bonds right now. I mean, you mentioned five to eleven and dropping back to five. I mean, a worse scenario, you're dropping back to five. Well, that's about the best you're going to get in the bond market. And for somebody who's sitting on the sidelines, just trying to. Uh, do something with their cash short term, you know, uh, it just seems like better than investing in six or one year or two year short term bonds right now as a parking place. But right. maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I mean, you just have to realize that the money is not coming from interest. It's coming from premiums on bonds, not, not bonds, right. uh, on, on the options. And and that's where you have to look at, because if they do move wrong, this, this fund's going to fall apart and drop. 30, 40%. Okay. So, so be, be careful with it. I, I see what you're saying, but yeah. uh, 
it's all well, really based on their expertise and how good they will be on options. And right. I've seen people right. rate options for years, and all of a sudden they go in the wrong direction. And we had the default of the Orange County bonds years ago because of options. Right. So be careful. All righty. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, Mike. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. Well, gosh, we only got a couple minutes left here. Um, I did want to talk about quickly. Uh, I want to say one. Sure, go ahead. And I, I just saw this after Mike got off the phone, but it's only been around since May 25th, 2020. Oh, you know, I was going to ask you that because when you said you went back to 2020, I was going to ask you, uh, why'd you go back to 2020? Is that when the fund started? So if it started in 2020, does it show how many assets are in it? Uh, $25.2 Oh, big, big. Well, again, with JP Morgan, Morgan Chase, yeah, yeah. They, they can get that, that up there. But that's a very short time frame since 2020. Now, they did have, what, 2020 was a big year in the market. Uh, well, not really. Twenty one was twenty two and twenty three so far have not been. But, but actually, it was a big year because if you invested in May twenty twenty, you should have been up substantially through the end of the year. And and I guess yeah, but but keep in mind since upon the options, the calls on those, <clears throat> they're probably being called away. But mm-hmm. I guess those years, if it was called away three months later, oh, I'll just step in buy something else and that goes up as well. So it's an e- I guess it was an easy market to maybe perform this in, but we're not going to have that. And three years is not a very long time. Was it? Has it been three years? Uh, you said January. yeah. It's actually coming up on that three-year anniversary. Three anniversary. It looks like yeah. I'm just looking at the chart. It looks like oh no, it's actually over that three years. So it looks like May 18th. Just kind of right. right. Oh no, actually I see the <clears throat> date here. May 20th. May 20th. 2020. So three years and six days. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, but it, it it just I mean that's not a very long time to do it, and I just don't like messing around with trading. Yeah. with options because I've been doing this for too long and it's and it can work for years. Then all of a sudden it goes sideways and you may think you're going to get out, but you'll say, well, it, well, it's down. I'll wait till it come back up, then I'll sell. Oh, well, it's down. And we talk about this in our, our workshop, the 17... 19. Uh, 19 <laughs> thoughts to trading. And you come up with all the excuses and then down the road uh, a year or two, like, oh, well, I, I lost 30% because I came up with all these excuses. Yep, yep. Now you got to be really careful of that, and especially, I know what Mike was saying about it being an alternative, but if you're looking for bonds, you're looking for kind of short-term money, it's like you, you don't want to risk short-term money, essentially. Right, right. And, and and the other thing, too, is that when you buy an equity, it goes down 20 30%. If you see the fundamentals, you know that can come up, back up, because the fundamentals are still there. But with a fund like this, there's no fundamentals, because if the stocks are being called away, they had to step in and buy up more stocks, maybe at a higher price, they went down, then the option expires, and maybe they're doing puts, maybe got called away from them. I mean, it just gets so complicated. I mean, I, I've been successful over the years by keeping things plain and simple and plain vanilla because um, when you get complicated, you start making mistakes and you try to... And it works sometimes, Yeah, but it doesn't work all the time. All the time, yeah. But if you buy good quality equity, yeah, you could go down 20 30 40%. But if their business is doing all the right things, they don't have a lot of debt, they've got the earnings, they'll come through and they'll come back up. This one may not come back up. So Exactly. Alrighty. Well, I, we got time. Uh, I, I was going to talk to you. Just, just real quick, we, we talk about the economy and how it's doing. Uh, if you have noticed, there seems to be a lot more car, cars on the road. Well, you'd be correct. For the qu- first quarter this year, Americans drove their cars 752 million by, billion miles. For comparison, the record was 753 billion miles back in 2019. So they're driving more. People are out there. People are out there. They're out there spending. Well, thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. 
let's discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can hear the show there on a podcast. A lot of great information there. Thanks for listening to Smart Investing Show. We'll be back next week. Have a good uh, good week. To think that I did all that.